From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Limited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 233 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well. Thank you. So are you thawing out from your um, Disney cruise? Oh, I mean, <laughs> not necessarily thawing out. It never got uh, it never got as cold as I quite wanted it to be. But I definitely am recovering uh, from the exhaustion of an Alaska cruise because uh, what what people don't tell you about Alaska cruises is if you want to make the most out of it, uh, basically your two days at sea that you have are the only ones where you get to relax. And any other time, if you're in a port or the day you're going up through the inside passage, you're going to be constantly on deck looking mm-hmm. over and looking at the nature. And heck, I'll even throw in our last day at sea too, because we had perfect weather sailing back just a little bit of a uh, little bit of rain here and there, but nothing, nothing too bad. It would really come in a swell and then it would be gone. But ultimately, then on the final day, after you know being okay with some of the wildlife we saw along the way, a little bit of whales and uh, other stuff, then on the final day, we just kept going straight through all of these different pods of dolphins, and oh, we wow. saw um, we saw a pod of probably like five orcas, which that was my first orca sighting in Alaska. So it like it ended up being this thing where. You know, even on the last day, we still probably spent six hours just taking all of the nature in. So, and it's one of those things that, you know, if there's a lot of people doing it, you can kind of figure out when they're looking at something in the water. You'll see all the phones and cameras come out, but, you know, you can't just sit on deck and like sit on deck four on the lounge chairs and and think you're going to see what's happening down below you. You, you won't. It'll, it'll just go by. And I mean, I know that because we were, uh, Rhino and I were watching some of the dolphins that were, were going past and we tried to follow them all the way to the end of the ship as they were finishing up riding waves. And we got to the end of the ship and then Elaine Edwards, one of our Dreams Unlimited travel agents that was with us, uh, she was just sitting in a lounger at the end and had no idea that, you know, 50 dolphins just passed by. And completely missed it all. So, so uh, they don't announce on the ship when there's wildlife. Because on when Carol and I we cruised uh, two or three times on Princess to Alaska, and then once on Royal Caribbean. And on Princess, um, they would announce. Yes, Princess does a lot better job with it. Disney did uh, announce from time to time when they would see something, but it wasn't. It, it wasn't. 
I don't want to say it was it, it wasn't constant enough, um, but they they would in some circumstances announce when there was something to look at. I guess when they actually noticed, and at that point they would say something. But like a lot of times with like the dolphins, they're not necessarily out in front of the ship. They uh, they end up you know coming in off the side, riding the waves for a while, and then staying behind the ship. So uh, it's it's a uh, it, 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 it's. One thing I think Disney could improve on with their Alaska cruises, there's a lot of things I think Disney can improve on with their Alaska cruises, but yeah, it's, uh, it's exhausting. It's, it's not a, it's not a vacation at all, but you know, and then it doesn't help when we book excursions like kayaking on a windy Lake Mendenhall in Juneau and, you know, taking <laughs> every little bit of energy out of us that we possibly had just to just to do that <laughs> excursion. But, uh, you know, Alaska is such a beautiful, uh, a beautiful state and a, a place that everyone should absolutely see at some point in time. So I'm, I, I can push past the exhaustion and, uh, you know, just be, be glad that I've now been able to see it for a third time. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is one of those, if, if you're going to do a cruise, you have to have Alaska on on your list of cruises to do one of the most tumultuous events in the history of the walt disney studio was the animator strike of 1941 i've talked about the strike in previous episodes and there is an exhibit about the strike at the walt disney family museum in san francisco what most disney fans believe about the strike is the animators and other studio staff went on strike for higher wages and employment security that Roy settled the strike when Walt and a contingent of artists and animators went on a goodwill trip to Central and South America, known as El Grupo, and that the family atmosphere of the studio was forever changed. However, in his new book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, author Jake S. Friedman has researched the strike and those involved and has written a story that is a web of intrigue organized crime, heightened emotion, miscommunications, and a deep analysis of the characters and motives of all those involved, including Walt Disney. Jagas Friedman is a New York-based writer, teacher, and artist. He is a longtime contributor to Animation Magazine and has also written for American History Magazine, The Huffington Post, Animation World Network, Animation Mentor, and The Philadelphia Dating news. For 10 years, he was animation artist for films and television such as Nickelodeon, the Disney Channel, and Saturday Night Live. He currently teaches history of animation in the New York City of Fashion Institute of Technology and at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. The rest of the time, he's a mental health practitioner specializing in the creative psyche. And Craig and I are delighted to welcome Jake to Connecting with Walt. Jake, thank you for joining us to talk about this little-known event in Disney history. And what interested you in writing about the Disney strike of 1941? Well, thank you for inviting me. I've always loved Disney history. I've always loved animated history. Um, and we're going back to my teen years in the pre-internet 90s. And I tried to pick up as many books as I could about you know, the behind the scenes stuff of Disney and not just the promotional stuff and not just the press related stuff, but the books 
by Disney people who published their their stories not through Disney, you know, like Bill Pete's autobiography and uh, the books by Seamus Culhane. I really devoured those back in the 90s. And this is also before eBay, you know, can we remember such a time when if you find a rare book, it's like a treasure. So it was hard to get your hands on books of, you know, from the 1940s or the 60s or 70s. You had to be really lucky. But I was able to get my hands on a couple of them. And I really love these stories about what the Disney studio was really like from the perspective of the animators and the artists involved. So Art Babbitt's name would come up, but it wasn't as, you know, ubiquitous as the Nine Old Men. And in things like, you know, the Disney Family Album, these brief specials on the Disney Channel back in the early days and mm-hmm. the 80s and stuff, Art Babbitt wasn't mentioned, and I got to know all about folks like Ward Kimball and Neil Call and Mary Blair, and you know even um, even Clarence Nash. Uh, and I really didn't understand why folks like Seamus Colhane were mentioning Art Babbitt. What's the big deal? I thought to myself. Um, and eventually, you know, little bits started to come out over the years. And then, you know, by 2001, I was a new student at NYU studying animation. And I had my first history of animation class with the late, great John Colhane. Um, and I'm sure your listeners know John Colhane as the author of the book on Fantasia and the book on Aladdin and the book on Fantasia 2000 and so many other great things. And, and he was one of the reasons I went to NYU to begin with. I just wanted to study under John Culhane. He just seemed, I saw him in the documentary, Frank and Ollie as well. And he just seemed so vivacious, so full of life. And I just loved his class from the first day to the last. I just loved his class. And he seemed to like, just be a big kid who just loved animation. He was at the time in his mid to late sixties back in 2001. And he was just like, he was just a giant kid who just loved animation. And and I thought, this is, this is what I want animation to be for me. And this is the kind of energy I want to surround myself with as much as possible. So after I took his class, I ended up just continuing to show up in his class the next year every day and then the year after that every day and uh i just i must have made an impact on him that was over my own head because when he invited me back after i graduated to speak to his students um i thought i was going to present a little you know spiel on what my experience was like in the animation field at that point i had worked on uh, Disney's Little Einsteins and uh, Wonder Pets for Nickelodeon and, you know, talk to these students about what it's like to actually be a young professional. But I did my little talk and I sat down and John Colhane then in front of everybody in the classroom said that I was going to be writing the book about the Disney strike and Art Babbitt. 
And uh, this was the first I'd heard of this. And this was not a question. This was just an announcement that he made. And I was like, what? I think I was 26 at the time. And he said, you will, won't you? So it turns out, actually, that John, at the time, had been in touch with Art Babbitt's widow, Barbara, over in Los Angeles, so the Hollywood area. And Barbara had feared that her husband's, her late husband's legacy was going to be forgotten um, and kind of overshadowed by all of the other, by all the other animation greats that had sort of like laid claim to Disney history. So she was going around asking people for help to immortalize Art Babbitt. And John recommended me. And there were people who were way more qualified to tackle this than me. People who had so many more years of research and writing and actual animation experience. But John wanted me to do it. And that was back in 2006 or 2007. And uh, it took from that day to this publication. What is this, like 14 years? Um, sorry for the background noise. I live in New York City, and I always have. Well, since since I came here for college. Um, I don't know what's going on. I live eight flights up. Can you believe it? You can still hear someone revving their engine. <laughs> um, so, so that was when I started on this project. And it was very daunting being someone with so little experience as, as I had and to tackle such a big subject. And I went to John Canemaker, who was uh, basically the head of animation at NYU. And I had a little relationship with him. He was my teacher. And I just thought he was such a great teacher and such a, such a warm presence. And I asked him, what should I do? John Culhane told me I'm going to write this book. And he said, well, do you even know who Art Babbitt is? I said, well, yeah, something. He was involved with a strike in some way. and he did some animation somehow involved with goofy he said well if you're gonna write about a person you better know him inside and out and i thought to myself okay challenge accepted <laughs> and so i started this like this like dig of research trying to dig as much as i could john had donated a bunch of his own archives to the nyu uh library and it's called the john canemaker collection funnily enough and i just hunkered down there and I, back when I was a student I would just hang out there and just like listening to his old interviews with people like June Foray and Frank Thomas and looking through his old files that he had collected from that Dave Smith had mailed him in the post like 40 years before. So now I was looking about like for our Babbitt related stuff and I ended up discovering how significant his role was in bringing animation education to the world. So my first new discovery about Art Babbitt was about him as a teacher and teaching animation, not just to Richard Williams' studio, but also uh, being the first like animation professor uh, before it was taught, like before Chouinard and before CalArts, he was teaching animation to, to students. Um, back in the early 50s. And before that, back at Disney, 1932, he brought in the art school and Don Graham. And as we all know, it was this art school that no other studio had, and it was elevating the Disney 
product so far above every other competitor throughout the 30s. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really cool that Art did this. And that kind of like, I started using my research as kind of like uh, springboards towards like an article or towards a blog entry. And I started to, to blog here and blog there about this um, and organize my research that way. And the more I dug, the more incredible stuff I found and the more sources I found. Like I first flew to Barbara Babbitt around 2008 or 2009. And she had just like tons of stuff that she never threw away. She just kept all of Art Babbitt's materials and all of his, all of his photos and audio recordings of interviews and home movies from the 30s. And I was holding his diary and reading his day-by-day -day diary and his old ID card from Disney and letters from Disney management. Like I just had so much access to the stuff that no one else had ever had. And that was such a special gift. And I would say that was like one big thrill. And it was just one thrill after another. I found that there was a collection of strike leaflets and bulletins and pamphlets that was down at the um, uh, CSU, Oviat, CSU Northridge Oviat Library. And going in there and looking at those files, I was able to sort of like track a day by day calendar of what the strike was like and what was going on in detail because they had these bulletins and they, and they were, the strikers were advertising what was happening on a daily basis. And then I uncovered the 1500 page uh legal document of when Babbitt sued Disney for his wrongful termination. And that was back in 1942, right when this was fresh, like the strike was 41, this lawsuit was 42. And I was able to read transcripts of every word of this nine days uh, trial. And Babbitt testifies, Walt testifies, every director at Disney testifies and a bunch of Warner Brothers directors testify um, and a bunch of other people testify as well. Uh, but in that collection of that 1500 page legal file were some really cool pieces of evidence that were submitted, not like windows into the golden age of Disney and not promotional stuff, not the stuff that they're sending to like you know, magazines or uh, newsreels, but this is stuff they're sending to court. And among these were sweatbox notes, and there were some cool like animation drawings and storyboard drawings too. But the coolest bits that I found there were stenographic uh, conversations that secretaries had taken word for word within the Disney studio about the strike outside the Disney studio with the strikers about the strike or with people who were going to be strikers, people who were pro-union and talking about Walt and or meetings like a meeting with Walt and not just strike leaders, but people from the local labor board. I mean, it was so cool to kind of be a fly on the wall here and read these, these lines, these actual words that were spoken in these meetings. 
And that really did a lot to bring this to life for me. And these constant discoveries over the course of like 10 years or more were, were so pivotal to my, my, my not dropping this project. It's very easy to say goodbye to a project after it takes so long. There was that, and there was also kind of the dedication to doing it for John because he passed away like seven years ago. And then doing it for Barbara, who passed away around five years ago. But most of all, doing it for art, because, you know, I, I spoke to his daughters a lot, and they remember a very bitter man. And it made me kind of sad that this strike became something so traumatic for, for Art Babbitt that I wanted his legacy to really be honored, not because Barbara wanted it and not because John wanted it, but because I wanted it. Is that answer short enough for you? <laughs> well, you know, it's because there are so many details in the book, um, you know, I, I'm impressed that you were able just to find all of that. Just all of the, uh, just, I, I was, I was wondering how did you find all of the information um, to go into this? Because this, this is a this is an incredible story, and like I was telling you off air, um, this was one of the few books. Um, I mean, I read a lot of Disney history books. This is one of the few books I did not want to put down because it just is so involved and so fascinating, and everything we know about the strike is the sanitized version i mean when 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 i when i started finding out that al capone was involved i mean i thought oh my gosh i i was right involved in here but one of the things that captured my attention early on i always assumed that the employee dissatisfaction that led to the strike you know it was in the late 30s you know with with the, just what they went through with um Snow White and those long hours and maybe not getting the the um, compensation and the recognition that they had hoped for in creating this film. And and, you know, but really, you you answered a question for me. This some of the dissatisfaction really had the roots going back to 1928 in that I always wondered why was Charles Mintz able to hire away most of Walt's animators so easily when he was attempting to renegotiate the contract for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit? And you go into that in your book. Can you tell us what was going on even back in 1928 in the studio? Yeah, sure. You know, I, I dedicate the first three chapters just to lay the foundation for how Walt Disney became Walt Disney. I really wanted to get into his head. Um, and I wanted to get into Art Babbitt's head. So a couple of chapters after that, I go into like how Art Babbitt became Art Babbitt because these are two very powerful personalities who are very much aligned throughout the 30s. They have the same dream. They believe in working hard for this dream and going above and beyond. And Art Babbitt has some brilliant ideas that changed the studio and Walt allows those ideas to happen. He gives, he, he, he just creates this, this sandbox for all of these experiments to happen. And Babbitt, he feels appreciated in a way he never had before. So when I was 
kind of piecing together the story of the wall, um, I was finding that, you know, when he, well, he had a great relationship with Margaret Winkler. And then when Charles Mintz took over, uh, Mintz was just demanding more and more of Walt, and it was really stressing Walt out. Uh, Mintz just didn't understand. Well, A, he didn't understand how, how to manage people because Mintz was really Walt's employer. You know, he had commissioned Walt. And either Mintz just didn't know how to handle uh, an independent studio like the early Disney studio, or he was out to purposely sabotage Walt because he wanted to build his own studio to create the Oswald cartoons. Um, either possibility, you know, I'll leave it up to the reader. But because of Mintz's uh, actions there and, and just like increasing the rate at which Walt was required to deliver material, Walt was just stressed out all the time. And he was probably feeling a little bit disenfranchised that this person was kind of taking advantage of him. And that trickled down to how he treated his staff. And so when Mince's brother-in-law came in to like secretly offer the staff a different, a different possible working situation, they were all like, yeah, let's do it. Let's leave Walt. Um, and that, that created this whole idea that for Walt, the most important thing for him is, is loyalty. That plays a big part in, in the strike, but it never really leaves him. I mean, it must have been so hard for a 26-year-old like Walt, 26, he was 26 at the time, back in mid-1928, early mid-1928, to, to see all of not just his, not just his staff, but these were friends who who like came in from Kansas City. Um, this must have been like just so harrowing for him. And that's and that's why you know, as evidenced in the Snow White title card, that loyalty was such a a prime virtue for him. I mean, he puts it right there in the card, saying, "Thank you for all your hard work and loyalty." So I kind of lay that groundwork to kind of have us understand Walt's intent this whole time and what drives him and what inspires him and and what gives him feelings of trust and what can throw away that trust for him. He's taking so much personally, I guess because of that very start when the Kansas City cohort leaves to go to Mintz, uh, it is personal. They're his friends. And then he wants to replicate that family feeling, that cohort feeling again. And then the strike happens. And then he kind of says, at, like after the strike, I'm going to separate myself. There's no such thing. I can't mingle with the sailors anymore. I can be friendly, but not familiar. And from that point on, Walt's just like, I'm doing my own thing within the studio. I'm the boss. He started to understand that he was the boss. He wasn't, he, he was not one of the, the rest of the crew that he had more to lose and that, and that he had just to protect himself. He had to, separate himself. Now, you mentioned Art Babbitt, and can you tell us who were some of the, because uh, as we walk through the strike, it'll be helpful to know, who were some of the other major 
players that played a role in the strike. If you could just sort of give us sort of little overviews of who they are so so we'll know who they are when you talk about the strike. Oh, okay. I mean there are there are more than a couple characters in the story of the strike. And I don't want to, you know, overload this podcast with so many other names. In fact, when I when I talk about the this book, I intentionally tried to limit it to just Art Babbitt and Walt, maybe mention Roy, and maybe mention Gunther Lessing. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to overwhelm the average reader. But if but if our listeners here are like, you know, big Disney aficionados, then okay, I'll just dive right in. So we have not just Walt and not just Art, although they're the chief players here. We have um well, let's talk a little bit about Gunther Lessing, right? So Gunther Lessing is the vice president of the company. He's Walt's and Roy's chief legal counsel. He's a few years older than uh, than than Walt and kind of fills a little bit of a fatherly figure role for Walt. And Gunther Lessing is also very successful as a lawyer. He comes from a, a very successful private firm in Texas. He uh, helps Walt early on back in the late 20s and becomes a full-time employee of the, of the Disney School on January 1st, 1930. And um, he has aligned himself with Walt and kind of like leaned in to all of Walt's feelings to basically keep Walt protected and have Walt feel protected from any other possible vultures like Charles Mintz was. And so flash forward to, you know, 1937, Snow White is a few weeks from premiering and Art Babbitt reads in uh, the local Time magazine that this guy, Willie Bioff, is coming to Hollywood to, to organize to be a union leader for all the crafts of Hollywood. Willie Bioff, another major player, this is the tie to Al Capone, right? He is the gangster <laughs> that is in the Capone uh, <laughs> syndicate. And, you know, it's like you can't make this up that his name is Bioff, but there you have it. Came from Chicago, uh, was, was a hoodlum there, and realized in this really kind of like new ground of uh, unrestricted unions, because unions were kind of new. This is like, this is the Roosevelt administration. And he just, you know, developed the uh, National Labor Relations Act and the National Labor Relations Board. That if, if Bioff realized if he can organize a bunch of people who work as projectionists, in other words, be their union leader, and then go over to the head of the theater that these projectionists work for. He can say to the head of the theater, we're all going to go on strike unless you, okay, bump their wage a little bit, but also give me $100,000. And so he was in this habit of blackmailing people. And then he thought, this is great. I can make this work. I'm going to expand. And dot, 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 the strings are pulled. And he ends up being the head of this union organization that still exists, it's clean now, as far as I know, called IATSE. And 
being the head of IATSE means that he can have all these crafts, all of these Hollywood workers in his control and go, and go to the union, excuse me, go to the studio heads, go to the head of Fox and go to the head of Universal, et cetera, and say, we're, we're going to go on strike if you don't pay me $500,000. So in a true mafia type way, he wasn't caught yet. <laughs> But it, but, it, but it was an open secret, you know, an open secret with quotation marks around it. And everyone knew that he was trouble. Meanwhile, Bioff is blaming the communists for smearing him. He's always saying that, like, the communists are trying to, they're anti-union and they're trying to take over. But everyone, they couldn't pin him with anything, but everyone knew what was really going on. And so when Babbitt reads that, Willie Bioff is trying to do this for, for animation as well, maybe. And the cameramen at like elsewhere and like their cameramen at the Disney studio and all these crafts. He goes to, to Roy. Roy says, talk to Gunther Lessing, our vice president. And Gunther Lessing says to Art, how about we together make, uh, not a union, let's call it an organized social group just to block Willie Bioff. And Abbott says, okay, sure. I don't know what a union really is, but okay, let's create a group. All I want to do is block Bioff, says Art. And so together, Gunther Lessing and Art Babbitt create this group. And the more Art, he's a very ambitious guy, Art Babbitt is. So he went, the more he tries to like figure out what this group is going to look like, the more it turns into a union. And he ends up saying, oh, I guess I'll get a lawyer. Guess I'll have some union dudes. Guess we'll have some union cards. And Pretty soon, he's the head of an in-studio union, like a, a private union just within the Disney studio, which whenever you have an in-company union, it's kind of by definition bogus because it doesn't represent the, the craft or the industry as a whole just within the company. And so, you know, the proof is in the pudding when Babbitt tries to negotiate just for union representation, Gunther Lessing says no. <laughs> Gunther Lessing like, continues to block this, and Babbitt is starting to feel like a stool pigeon. And this happens over the course of, like, over and over, over the course of, like, uh, like a couple of years. And there are some, like, really dramatic stories that happen in 39 and 40, 1940, that convince Art Babbitt that he's being used the whole time. And this really gets his goat. And so finally, when he finds out that this new independent union outside of the Disney studio has organized MGM, and now, you know, those folks who draw Tom and Jerry are now going to have a pay bump for all the lowest paid people, inkers, painters, assistants, in-betweeners and they have union representation and they can negotiate for, you know, better working conditions, etc. He says, I'm going to join these independent guys. And he does. And his first act joining these independent guys um, called the Screen Cartoonist Guild is he proposes a boycott of Disney, which takes a lot of moxie to do and a lot and a lot of ire as well. And from that point on, he kind of like is acting out of emotion, but he's at that moment being the spark 
that will light the fire under the people at Disney to really to really get a, a real bona fide union representation started. So, so Gunther Lessing just, he will not relent. He will not budge. He has cozied up with Walt and he wants to remain in Walt's good favor. And so what Lessing does increasingly throughout the, these months and into the strike and through the strike is he kind of plays into Walt's fears, fears of communism, fears of racketeering. And you can see this in a meeting that I had the transcription of that I put in the book where, where Gunther Lessing is basically like, like interjecting with things that he knows is going to rile Walt up and get Walt to be even more anti-union. So it's unclear to me, and maybe you know we'll never know what it would have been like had Gunther Lessing not been so stubborn and, and played into Walt's own stubbornness, rather than having someone who would mediate a little bit, maybe have more of a taste for the middle ground. But Lessing won't budge. And eventually, Bioff comes back with a vengeance. And to the Disney folks, Bioff doesn't seem as bad as the Screen Cartoonist Guild. And so it gets crazy when the Disney folks align with Bioff just to fight the Screen Cartoonist Guild. So <laughs> if you're asking for other players, I'll just name those two. We have a few other interesting people. We have Dave Hilberman in there. We have Herb Sorrell, who's a big union leader who used to be a boxer. Well, like we kind of get a feeling for, for, for Roy just a little bit. This book was originally going to be about 50% longer. Um, it clocks in at about 80,000 words and it was gonna be 120,000 words, but I had to trim a lot of stuff away. And among that was more like going deeper into character profiles of some of these other folks. But I really did as much as I could about the people who play a significant role in the strike, including Dave Hilberman, who was the uh, layout artist who some of your listeners might know. And he, you know, we probably know that after this, he went on to be like a big guy in UPA. But during the strike, he was uh, the secretary of the Disney branch of the Screen Cartoonist Guild, working right under Art Babbitt. And he also, when he was a young man, had gone to Russia on uh, this like arts scholarship program, uh, communist Russia, and was so turned on by the free art supplies and uh, the free meals for artists and the racial equality that communism was all about that he says this communism thing really isn't that bad as far as I can see. And he joins the Communist Party. As far as I know, Dave Hilberman is the only member of the Communist Party that was part of this strike. I don't have any evidence that there was anyone else who was a communist member. But that did stop folks from the Disney side saying that these strikers are communist-led and they're corrupt. It was just, there was a lot of a lot of a lot of strong feelings being passed around. And if people read this book now, they might see an echo of kind of what some people see today of of uh, people being so um, 
so segregated with their beliefs and no one's coming to the table to really talk like through facts and through feelings rather than, you know, just like reading what's in the paper and just jumping to conclusions. Well, that's what I what I really saw in this, because you go you do go into wonderful detail about what was going on between Art Babbitt and his group and Gunther Lessing. And it really changed my opinions because everybody was so entrenched. But it really changed my opinions of what I thought, like, you know, Art Babbitt was always the, seen as the the bad guy in, in everything. And, you know, and, and things really you didn't really see a resolution between him and the company until I think was it what what was it? Snow White's um, 50th anniversary. She got the star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. The film did. And and Roy E. Disney invited him to be at the ceremony. And that was sort of the great healing there. But art, I, it, you get the impression in your book, art started out with good intentions. He wanted to keep the mafia out of the studio. And Gunther Lessing, who you thought would have been on board with that, really worked so hard. Everything he did made everything worse. And I thought, how could an educated man make everything so worse? And that he his actions really, in from if I'm under if I read everything correctly, really was a great instigation for the strike to happen. Oh, you read it correctly. <laughs> so, so how did everything come to a head when? Um, well, first of all, the other studios were unionizing, but mm-hmm. Walt and Roy were still opposed, even though the writing was on the wall, that the union was coming. What Was it because of what Gunther was telling him? Because Roy was always the, you know, what was the emotion, was always emotional, but Roy was always the steady one in the relationship. Why were they both so opposed to the unionization? That's a really great, great question, and I, I tried my best to to kind of let the reader decide by just presenting who they were when they were young and trying to create this, just trying to flesh them out um, because they're, you know, they're human, they're three-dimensional, they're complex, just like any of us is. They have their reasons, and Walt especially was very was very driven by his experiences during his childhood, during his early years. So it's that element that made him such a great all ages entertainer, you know, being in touch with his inner child that really held him back. He had all these childhood memories of his dad, who was a socialist, and his dad being extremely authoritarian and kind of like giving Walt all of these, all these awful memories, you know, um, we all know the story of him being a newspaper boy and, you know, early and waking up before dawn and like doing it after school twice a day. But there were also other experiences like Walt described seeing his dad being used and abused by unions or socialists. I had uncovered that one of the farm collectives that his dad was involved in back during the Marceline days um, was actually a pyramid scheme. 
And it was not a bona fide farm collective. It was just a way to get the money from gullible, honest farmers like Walt's dad. So Walt saw that. Walt also saw how um, there was a bombing at the post office where he worked at age 16. And the chief, uh, um, the people who were the chief suspects of this bombing were a terrorist socialist group called the IWW. And it was just a couple days after the socialist bombing, like, quote unquote, this alleged socialist terrorist attack that almost blew Walt up. Like, Walt was literally a few feet away from the door before it blew up. And the reason why people suspected this group was because uh, the, the judge who condemned the head of this group to prison was a couple floors above in this courthouse building. But Walt saw his coworker blown to bits at age 16. And he talks about this during, a, during an interview as an adult. I mean, the kind of, the kind of uh, trauma that it must lay on to someone for it to stick in their, in their mind for a few decades has to be something significant. But he was 16 at the time, and only a few, a couple days after this happened, he joined the war effort, which was an anti-socialist act. The socialists were anti-World War I. His dad was anti-World War I. Uh, when Walt joined World War I, he was basically going against his dad. He's going against socialism. He's taking a stand for his beliefs. He's saying, screw, so screw socialism. Screw my dad's beliefs. I'm going to join World War I, even if it means faking my age. And so he does and becomes the, you know, the, the, the ambulance driver in France, post-armistice. And so this was sort of like, why is he so anti-socialist? Well, part of him is raging against his dad. Part of him is caring for his dad and seeing how things like this bogus farm collective took advantage of his dad. And a lot of it is reading like the Hearst-led newspapers and seeing how these newspapers are calling um, unions gangster-led and communist-led. And he's believing this 100%. And it's it's Gunther Lessing who's kind of like pointing him in this direction. So Walt was such a strong-willed and opinionated person that even his artists, you'll see this in, in books like Jack Kenney's book, um, our, our, or Bill Pete's book, or any interviews that you'll see in like, in Don Perry's book or books. It's, it, what, it, you can't disagree with Walt. Uh, disagreeing with Walt just puts him in an awful mood. And he gets what his secretary said, his bear suit on, right? Walt <laughs> is wearing a bear suit. So you don't want to get Walt in a bad mood. You don't want to contradict him. Um, if he says, do it this way, just say, yes, Walt, and figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Out. Everyone always said that. Yeah, yeah. So for that reason, Gunther Lessing knew that the, that the only way to work with him is to kind of like, say yes, Walt, and lean into whatever Walt was uh, already feeling. And so that's what Gunther Lessing did. He played into Walt's fears that way. It's unfortunate that, that Walt operated that way. He didn't have the kind of literature that we have now about leadership or how to run a company or, you know, how to, as Dale Carnegie writes, make friends and influence people or, or things like that. He, this didn't exist. This kind of like self-help motivational genre didn't really exist back then. 
didn't start existing until the late forties. So, you know, studio heads and company leaders had to figure out on their own what it meant to be a good company leader. And Walt was constantly trying to glean info from people he considered to be the professionals, you know, like learning from Henry Ford. Oh, this is what an assembly line looks like. It makes sense to, you know, make animation as much of an, of, of an assembly line process as possible. Walt didn't invent the assembly line process for animation, but he sure leaned into it and especially knew that when you're casting animators, you want to, you want to frame that as you're casting, you know, live action actors. And so you have specialists who are, who are good at women or specialists who are good at like people who are um, silly toddling people, people who are good at heroes, people who are good at villains. And you sort of like peg Babbitt first as, I mean, no pun intended, as a villain animator, thinking that he, because it was Babbitt who did that really great bit of the mad doctor slicing or cutting with scissors Pluto's shadow in half. And he started casting Babbitt as the Pete animator. And then Babbitt said, you know, I have all these Pete scenes in Mickey's service station, but I really want to do Goofy. And it was Walt said, he said, first you finish Pete, and then you can do Goofy. At the time, he was just called Dippy the Goof. This was after Dippy Dog, before the name Goofy. And so Walt was kind of like very keen and very intuitive, and he allowed his artists a chance. And yet there were some ways in which he was just so set in his ways, just so stubborn. He was so willing to say, okay, this art school is working, let's do it. Hey, you have this camera, you're shooting live action footage art, it's working, it's making your animation better. Let's have the whole studio use it. And so the whole, like the whole studio did use it. He said, oh, Art, you wrote this character analysis of Goofy. Art had taken the Stanislavski method acting books and applied it to a cartoon character, which was completely novel, and gave Walt the, the key to what he was looking for this whole time, which was personality. And Walt's like, we're going to do this now. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to, this is how we're going to do personality. We're going to figure out the, the, the inner psyche of our characters. So Walt was, as long as you were in line with Walt, Walt was willing to, to go in different directions. But as soon as you diverge from his values, he was not a pleasant person. And instead of trying to reason with Walt or, or talk about um, like negotiating those values, um, Roy just kind of like stepped back and Lessing leaned into it. And neither of those things were good for those who were feeling pro-union and pro-strike. Well, Craig and I aren't going on strike, but we are going to take a pause and just sort of do a little walkout here of our conversation with Jake. But we're going to rejoin him next week when we'll continue our conversation about his book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, which is, of course, the Disney strike of 1941. But now it's time for this week in Disney history. Up, 
I didn't check in advance, Craig. So who goes first this time, you or me? Oh, uh, I didn't check either. And <laughs> my my brain obviously isn't working well. So I can volunteer uh, to go first. Okay, that's fine. Okay, well, I chose a very important Muppets date from <laughs> August. I knew you were. I saw two big <laughs> Muppet events, and I thought, I am not touching either of them. Well, <laughs> I, I'm choosing specifically the one that happened on August 28th in 1989. And that was a big day because that's when Jim Henson uh, ended up at the uh, the Walt Disney World Resort and and Jim and Kermit the Frog left their imprints and their their signatures in that courtyard area which you can obviously still see today and uh, that's you know obviously with with all the fact there was hopes that there'd be more to come with the relationship between the Jim Henson company and the Walt Disney company but obviously uh, Jim's passing away led to a lot of issues with that. And even now that Walt Disney Imagineering has control of the Muppets, it's still not as, as great as uh, Disney fans would, would prefer it to be, but still a, uh, a very, a very important date because it, it, it signified a lot of hope between the two creative partnerships, especially as, you know, Jim was definitely focusing on, uh, on other projects and it's not like he he lost passion for the muppets but he was already on that path after directing dark crystal labyrinth all the all the sideshows the storyteller you know all these all these projects that weren't necessarily muppet centric and you know there was there was a lot of hope that he had that he found a good home for for muppet projects with with the Walt Disney company and uh it just uh it could have it could have been great it could have been great and it still can be great so i'll, I'll i sure hope so yeah i hope so since as we've talked many times that Walt Disney because the other major disney event during this time period that i saw was the disney company assuming ownership of of the muppets but that i was not no, that one's not as happy because Disney doesn't seem to know what to do with them. But then I'm trying to think, what is the Jim Henson studio working on right now? Trying to, and uh, I mean they they uh, they do a lot. So I I can I actually have to be very careful with what I can say about it because I have a friend uh, who works for the Jim Henson company, and so I sometimes. Unfortunately, I, I forget the the blur between things that have been publicly announced and oh, things yes. that haven't. Oh, I understand. Um, but uh, no, it's uh, and I don't want to break the NDAs that I've signed in the past before. But <laughs> um, no, I mean it's the they of course uh, over the pandemic uh, era. Uh, the Walt Disney Company and uh, and specifically Disney Plus and the Jim Henson Company were able to produce Earth to Ned together, and I, I never I, watched I, that. I, I think it is it is perfect Henson humor and snarkiness, but on a Disney Plus platform. So bringing in uh, celebrities that would show up because of the Disney connection to it. So I, I still, even though it's kind of dated to that time period and they weren't able to, to produce more ultimately down the line. Um, I, I think it's still, 
worth a watch just alone for the puppetry it's it's really awesome stuff and i was actually lucky enough to be at at the lot when they were putting together the ned puppet and got to see it all coming together and it's like wow that's this is it's cool technology puppetry is advanced so much but you know they they still Jim Henson Company still produces uh, children's television, and they the creature shop part gets hired off to still do puppetry for uh, for any TV shows or movies that might need specialty puppets. So they they're still very busy. I got to see I got to see some oh, really okay. cool puppets they were working on the last time I was in California. It made me like so jealous that the specific thing they were working on I probably will never get to see because of where it's uh it's going to be taking place at but huh okay <laughs> so all righty well mine is um I'll, mine actually ties into our conversation with Chat Jake that we're having this weekend next week and that is uh October 31st 1938 Walt and Roy Disney they placed a $10,000 deposit on a 51 acre tract on Buena Vista Street in Burbank, California. And of course, this is where they're going to build their new modern animation studio. The success of Snow White has enabled the Disney Brothers to purchase the $100,000 property from the Burbank Department of Water and Power. Construction will begin in 1939 um, at the studio. So, of course, this is the beautiful Walt Disney Studio that we know today. Um, this, they purchased the land on this date. So, and we, we will talk about it, I think, more next week. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the impact <laughs> uh, this had on the Disney strike and the strikers. So we talked about your Alaska trip in the beginning of the show. So what were the highlights for you? Oh, man. Highlights. Uh, you know. All the ports are really incredible. So I'm not, and and Vancouver itself is an incredible city. Um, the 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 one thing that still blows me away is uh, the the night before we we left, there was a tiki bar that I wanted to check out in uh, in Vancouver. And after trying to catch up on jet lag and sleeping all day, it was like. Man, late like 10 30 i was like you know what it's still open for another hour so i'll try to get a ride share over there and go and you know i'm i'm taking in the tiki goodness that that it was it's called shameful tiki if you're ever going to vancouver and uh it was because of the night it was i guess like every other week they do like this kind of like 60s go-go dancing that is very <laughs> um you know very very of that there is a certain era of tiki that that fits in very well. And so it was kitschy and fun. And I'm just sitting there by myself and uh, because Rhino hadn't shown up yet at that point. And uh, at one point in time, one of the, the dancers tried to get me up and, and throw me into the entire mix. And I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Please. I'm, I've got my drink right here. So then we're we're the last two people in the bar, and we're we're 
you know, trying, we're trying to get out of there and apologizing for keeping them so long. And one of the dancers was, was still there and sitting at the bar and I, saw her mug that she had and I went over and asked which one it was exactly and complimented it. And at that point, that's when she heard my voice. She was like, Oh my God, are you Craig? And <laughs> it was one of those small world scenario situations. And then she's like, Oh my God. And that's Rhino right behind you. And, uh, <laughs> It, uh, it it turned out that she knew us uh, specifically through her boyfriend and, you know, also watched all our stuff and listened and, and like it took it all in. But uh, her boyfriend was mega, mega fan. And uh, unfortunately, he was out of town, so we weren't able to connect with him. But uh, it just it was one of those small world things that she was like, the reason I tried to get you to dance is because I was like, you really look like Craig. So oh, um, that that whole experience was was just so wild. So that was a highlight um, going. We, we had issues with our inside passage day because of weather and other ships being in the area. So we had to switch from Dawes Glacier to Sawyer. Uh, but Pete was able to get all of us on one of the glacier exploration boats. So we got to get mm. very, very close uh, to the glacier and it was it, it was incredible i mean it was one of those things that like they they charged 260 dollars i think for it and I, I think they could charge double it and it would still be worth it with with just how insanely close you get to to seeing these massive massive glaciers um but that yeah that was that was a highlight and uh i we had a really good day in juno with the kayaking on lake mendenhall despite being exhausted uh got to hit a couple breweries there too and uh, take in more of the city and then surprisingly ketchikan ended up being a huge hit for us uh it just wasn't really expected. It's not really a city that that I like that much. But we found some. We found good food. We found good drinks. Uh, the salmon were running, so we were able to see salmon. And then there were seals that were kind of in the Creek Street area, and they were picking off the salmon who weren't who weren't swimming <laughs> fast enough. So we had we had wildlife in there. So those those were pretty much the highlights. And then. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, seeing seeing an orca in person, and not only yeah. just uh, a, a wild, not just wild adult orcas, but we saw at least one uh, youth one, if not two. I couldn't couldn't really tell. I could see the one pop up, and it was a small, small orca. But then seeing the full size one, you know, seeing the massive, the massive fin that yeah, you always see of the wild ones, like it just it it was mesmerizing. It was all. All, all the wildlife is a highlight for sure. So I, I'm so tired and I've like, I feel like I'm not natured out, but I'm, I, I definitely need to like withdraw from it for a while or I'm going to be sad that I'm not back up there, but it's just, it, it's given me the travel bug again to get to any place like that. That's just, that is so, so beautiful and, and nature forward. It's nothing against Disney parks, but Walt Walt loved nature too. He loved oh, traveling. he did absolutely, and um, yeah. The next time I go to Alaska, I want to then do one of the rail journeys, 
and hit, you know, go to the park, stay in some of the lodges. Yeah. And all that. I'd love to do that. Yeah, that's that is I I'm since I'm like every other now and I did Disney then Princess one way but we flew back after and now Disney again. The next time I I cruise I would prefer it to be once again on Princess and do a one way and then really go into Denali and some of the mm-hmm. other national parks because like I, you know, if if you time it right, it just I feel like you can hit a perfect time of year with it. Like we we were we had a chance to see the northern lights on this trip, but uh, it was it was kind of a it was kind of a mess. Like they it was visible, I guess, for three specific days that we were there. And the one night we I went on the top deck, couldn't see anything. And then the next morning, saw photos that people posted on DCL fans' Facebook page of them. And then once you talked more to people, then they're like, well, you couldn't see it visibly. But if you put your phone out, then it actually was picking up and taking pictures. Oh, how funny. So so we tried it all the next night, and it didn't didn't work at all. It was just – it was kind of bouncing off glare from other photos. So, like, I really want to get – deep into alaska and try to see the northern lights and see even more animals in their in their habitat and just really really appreciate that state for for how incredible it is yeah i agree with you i'd love to do the same as well so that's that'll be one of my next cruises i think hopefully someday (laughs) (laughs) but speaking of tiki i know you saw this because you posted it also on twitter the monstro tiki mug that by the time the show releases is out there i thought why could this have not been released two weeks ago when i was there for my birthday right i mean oh i want that mug so badly because it's pinocchio and i want to set it up next to my nautilus have him attacking my nautilus you know, tiki mug that I got at Trader it, Sam's. It is such a beautiful design, and it is I mean, the the cool part too is like you know I I hope they made enough, and I'm sure they didn't because the, based on the post, it I guess they're doing the same protocol they've done before, where if they sell out on day one, it's gone. If not, it'll move to actual inside Trader Sam's, and they'll continue selling and potentially make a drink with them. Uh, but what's interesting, uh, I at first I was reading things that there was a design, uh, the same design, but a different color scheme for Walt Disney World being made. But then the the artist of the mug said, I don't think they're going to go with it. But then Walt Disney World responded me to, to me directly on Twitter and said that it would be there'd be one coming our way here too Hmm. so at least i'll say they're they're giving they're giving people on both coasts a chance to be able to get some sort of version of it so that's good yeah if we don't get lucky on the disneyland side who knows maybe maybe i'll be able to get lucky on the walt disney world side yeah but speaking of my disneyland trip i had a wonderful time mary joe was very kind and she spent the whole weekend hanging out with me Disneyland, because she didn't want me to spend my uh, birthday alone, and met a lot of listeners, quite a few listeners to the show. He told me to tell you hello as we bumped as I went around, and um, it was fun. Mary Jo had not never seen the the two shows at Princess um, Fantasy Theater um, over there, you know, um, and so she thoroughly enjoyed them. They were great. They, I'm so happy they brought them back. 
And those are, you know, it was beating the beast and tangled. And um, they told that story. I remember there used to be a third one trying to rack my brain as to what the third one was, but um, can't remember. I'll have to. Yeah. Hmm? I I feel like I always saw the tangled one. No matter. Yeah. Which is, I think the best of the two. So, um, but it was, it was great. We, oh, I did my first um, live feeds with Mary Jo on our, on the Diz Facebook page from Disneyland too. And saw the Main Street Electrical Parade, which every time they it limps out onto you know at Disneyland, there's there's more of it missing. So you know the whole circus scene is gone. Um, one of the big Pinocchio floats is gone. Most of the Snow White section is gone. I thought, yeah, how much more of this is going to be missing before they just finally say, okay, we're done. This we're done with this. You know, so um, it's only got a couple weeks left, or not even <laughs> actually at this point, one week left at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, God only knows what they're going to break as they take it across the country, back to the Magic Kingdom there. Yeah, so, but um, what? Don't push that on us. We don't want it. I, it is coming back, isn't it? Uh, there's nothing official on it, but it seems like the most likely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hope it. Let's hope they can survive the trip. I thought the finale was cute and all that, you know, the, um, you know, it's fine. I like the big, the small world facade at the end too, that they do. Yeah. It's it's cute for what it is, but yeah. uh, And they redid, sorry. No, well, they redid the soundtrack too. That's really noticeable for the whole parade. So what were you going to ask? I was going to ask, what was the deal with your sad Monte Cristo that you had? Oh, my gosh. I will never order a Monte Cristo again. Remember how they were saying in that famous, um, was it an earnings call or shareholders call or something, that they were they're making the portion smaller to, um, you know, and then it, so that we don't get fat or something. I forget yeah. how yeah. that woman said it. The Monte Cristo sandwich is less than 25% of what it used to be. It, 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 I, I, I was shocked. And it's like still 20-something dollars. It's the only way you can get palm frites also. Yeah, because it's just regularly isn't on the menu right now, which no. makes no sense to me. A lot of the menus are really, are really uh, much shorter than it used to be. Like Carnation Cafe's menu is. I mean, all of them are. Um, they they haven't brought them back to what they used to be pre-pandemic, but I, I won't order Monte Cristo anymore, and I don't recommend anybody does. It is it is not worth it, um, you know. And it's sad because that's what it was famous for. You know, I don't know yeah. if it's they're doing the same thing in the Blue Bayou. But yeah, I have no I. I... I just have no idea the the decision behind it. I mean, maybe if they're saving on like food costs or something, then I get that. But I, I part maybe it makes me really terrible for saying this, but I was never ever able to be able to finish a whole Monte Cristo. That didn't stop me from ordering them. Uh, mm-hmm. But oh, same way for me. Yeah, but it was something about it that I never felt like I wasn't getting the value for it because no. you know I I ate as much as I could. And then I would, I would leave the rest, but 
to be able to like sit there and be like, oh, I'm still hungry after eating a signature sandwich. That's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a birthday cake afterwards. So that filled me up. But uh, yeah, it was very disappointing. And I don't know. I I got a survey, but it was for California Adventure the next day. I would have said something about the Monte Cristo. But I was shocked. And I didn't bother to tell the server. She seemed very harried. So um, that I didn't express my disappointment to her. But that that was one of the death. Now, the good thing is at the Hungry Bear, they brought back the fried green, fried green tomato sandwich. Yes. And that had me so, so bummed that that wasn't available. Or maybe it was available when I was out there. But maybe I just didn't look at the, the menu for uh, Hungry Bear at that point. But I wanted always wanted to get the fried green tomato sandwich at at hungry bear and then of course it was it was gone and removed from the menu when i finally like was at the point where i might have a chance to be able to get it so i'm keeping keeping my fingers crossed i might have a day or at least a little bit of time at disneyland uh on d23 expo weekend and if if i do that will definitely be one of the things i need yeah that's one of the things I I would always eat when I was when I'm there, but uh, I also I noticed on the haunted mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean they've adjusted the lighting. In haunted mansion, you can see a little more. I really like what they did the lighting. But what Mary Jo and I noticed because we um, that the happy haunts you know uh, stopped our doom buggies and we were stopped in the attic we saw i never seen this before and i think part of it is because of the lighting or maybe they added them in we saw a model we were right in front of one of the the pictures it was one of the first ones of one of the unfortunate husbands mm-hmm. you know and on the floor in front of him was a model of our haunted mansion and what looked like Phantom Manor. Really? And yes. And uh, and um it I'd never seen that before. I don't know if they've always been there or if they just put them there or if they're going to start to tell some sort of a story. I don't know. But when next time, and I don't know if it's going to be visible now that they're doing the overlay for um, Nightmare Before Christmas, for the Haunted Mansion holiday. But um, I, I was blown away, and I, I pointed out to Mary Jo so she can confirm it that it was there. I will have to look for that next time. I, I definitely yeah. have never seen that before. Yeah, yeah. So, and um, but I had a wonderful time. I was, I was really worried about. You know, okay, is the magic still going to be there? I didn't use Genie Plus or anything like that. I still had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, I'm not as impressed with Avengers Campus as maybe other people are. Like um, a couple of the 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 spontaneous shows that they do, which if you ask, we had to ask cast members when they were going to do them. I saw them and I thought, okay, it's a sort of a one and done for me. And then I watched the Doctor Strange one. They've got to get benches in there because, first of all, it was in the upper 90s the whole time I was there. And the slate they make you sit on, it absorbs heat. And I couldn't sit on it. It was burning me through my trousers. 
the heat and other people were equally uncomfortable. I think maybe if you're wearing thick jeans, you were okay. I wasn't wearing thick jeans. And so, um, and I was not, I love Dr. Strange, but not a fan of this show. <laughs> so um, anyway, so, so I don't know. I did like the Spider-Man, you know, thing. And um, yeah. that was yeah, cool. That I, is cool. Yeah, I, I will agree with you with some of the the shows, specifically the um, the the choreographed battles that happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. be, beside the well on the Quinjet building, they uh, th- I did not care for those. <laughs> yeah, and but it's neat that they have um, characters just sort of walking around. I do like that. They had um, the current Captain America just sort of walking the perimeter. They had, I've not seen Thor Love and Thunder, but they had, um, I don't know, Mr. and Mrs. Thor. I don't know. Thor yeah, and Lady uh, Thor. Thor. I don't know the, what her name the, is. The Mighty Thor or Dr. Oh, Jane right. Foster. All right. Yeah, because now everybody's become, because all the superheroes are becoming women now. And then, um, anyway, so they were there hanging out and all that. And then afterwards, after Spider-Man did his thing up on the roof, he came you know, down and then he did not do a meet and greet. He went up through and high fived everybody. And I thought, I don't know how hot he is in that double knit suit of his. <laughs> but oh my God. But the funny thing is he he was speaking as he sort of ran through giving his high fives. He sounded he was he sounded like Spider Man. Yep. I was very impressed. So yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. I've the the couple that I've I've heard are like spot on. Yeah. Yeah, so so they're doing a good job with the characters themselves, so and all that there. So I so I enjoyed that. I was very happy, and and uh, you know they, I guess they heard us on our Q and A show or whenever we were talking about um, enchantment. They finally heard my complaints mm-hmm. over there, and they've 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 done the little tag at the beginning that has now made it a fiftieth anniversary celebration that they can take off in a few months cup what a uh, six weeks when does when does the 50th end <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey we have it through april but oh, okay uh, no you're 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 absolutely right it's uh you know we we talked about it and i know i've been i i i've been kind of all over the place with enchantment and my my thoughts on not just the show but how they could have handled the 50th in it and Honestly, yeah, it's I think I think this is the best way to appease everyone now. I mean, minus mm-hmm. the people who are still it's a still a garbage show. I would have rather had happily ever after. Well, it's that's not, what everybody's not, saying. I noticed that in the comments. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's fine. I mean, I, it's I do think happily ever after, even even with this tag, just because I've, I've not seen it in person yet, only only in videos, but. Yeah, it doesn't all of a sudden make it a better show than Happily Ever After, but I it's it's just one of those things where the show the new show that comes isn't always going to be better than the last show. And yeah, yeah. it's that's that's just a fact. I mean, if you stack up as we've talked about Remember Dreams Come True versus Disneyland mm-hmm. Forever, there is a clear winner between the two of those and it's not disneyland forever uh and mickey's mixed magic came after you know, 
after well, that, Disneyland that had a forever. Short lifespan. <laughs> so, like, it's just sometimes, sometimes it's not as great. And I get it. 50th anniversary, it should be the best of the best, but uh, that's. It, it's just it's not the reality of who Disney is targeting right now. Disney is targeting Disney isn't targeting fans. They are targeting everyone else. And the fact that they at least heard fans and said, you know what, we can put a little bit in. That's a big victory. So mm-hmm. it's we can complain about how terrible the show is after the anniversary and beg for happily ever after to come out. But at the very least, right now as fans, we need to just be excited with the fact that it, they seemingly did listen because this clearly wasn't wasn't something that just took too much time and that's why it 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 wasn't in there from the beginning it could have been in there from the beginning it wasn't meant to be this is this was something that a decision was finally made to add it so yeah let's just be happy with that <laughs> no i agree i agree and i look forward to when you release your video on it yep i should be so. going tomorrow night Okay. Yeah, I haven't watched it. I haven't watched it on anybody else's. So, um, and I know you talked about this on Walt Disney World show, so I'm not going to belabor it. The list of Disney legends. I feel <laughs> they've jumped the shark here. Yeah. With this one, I'm just going to say, a lot of these people from television, I don't think they've done anything legendary whatsoever. This, and we talked about this. I think in the last Legends Award, where now Disney has bought so many other companies, and now they just have to bring in these people that did stuff for these companies, not necessarily Disney, and they've got it. But I feel they're they're scraping the bottom of the barrel with some of these in here. Um, you know what? Frozen was a terrific movie. I don't think any of these people deserve a Legend Award. I don't think they've done that much for. The Disney Company, a uh, Chadwick Boseman. I think that's an emotional award, and I think I love Black Panther. I loved all his work that he did. I loved Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Not family friendly, yeah. but I thought he did a fantastic performance in it. And, and I have not seen me. What If. Mm-hmm. Oh uh, yeah, and I was going to say too. Uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, uh, forty two where he played Jackie Robinson was technically released under Fox. So now on the, on the Disney banner, I could be wrong with that too, but I mean, another fantastic performance, probably actually my favorite performance. Of I'm going to have to look that one up then. I, I haven't seen that one. It's yeah. It's a, I mean, it's your standard sports biopic, but I mean, he's, it's elevated with him and Harrison Ford and, uh, Alan Tudyk is has a very cringy role in it, but important, and it's it, it's worth watching. But I mean, yeah, it, I, I, I if you didn't listen to our Walt Disney World show, I'm not speaking to you, I'm the people out listening. Like, I, I tried to play devil's advocate as much as possible on it, and I think we settled with we can we can understand why some of the Frozen cast should be Disney legends in the future. But yeah, in the future, yeah, they yet. need to do a, they need to do a little more. Yeah, so um, the the only one on the list that jumps out besides Chadwick, uh, because as you said, it's it's an emotional one, and I think it is it's it's deserved. He didn't he had a short time on this earth, but he left a 
massive impact in legacy in mm-hmm. that time. And I, I think that one's justified. But beyond that, and you know, the 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 back of house choices, uh imagineer choices with it, besides that, it's it's really just yeah. on haunt. It's yeah, Robert Coltrane. Um I know you guys didn't know who he was on the show, but I'm reading Kevin Rafferty's um autobiography right now, my uh, magic journey. And Robert Coltrane plays a big part in that and um, and, and very creative, very much an inspiration for Kevin Rafferty, um, a fantastic storyteller. But um, in Imagineering, he was involved in so many, creating so many shows and uh, attractions. He deserves it, definitely. And Patrick Dempsey, uh, please. Um I laughed when Corey said, Michael Bowling's yelling at the television right now about Bob Foster, Robert Bob Foster. Um, yeah, he de- he deserves it. If it wasn't for him, and, and we talked about him on the show, uh, we, if it wasn't for him, the land would not have been purchased quite as easily yeah. um, on the Florida project. Um, I found Josh Gad insufferable. Um, so I won't go there with them. And um, Don Hahn, we've had him, as you mentioned, we've had him on the show. Absolutely. I think a Disney yeah, legend with overdue. his body of work. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I'm glad he's still involved with the um, with 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 the company and all that. Doris Hardoon also for especially her work on the international parks. But animal kingdom also and then a lot of the stuff that never got built <laughs> so she's yeah, famous for it as well <laughs> yeah yeah although a lot of it found a home elsewhere uh some of what she created like um disney sea and long beach well that ended up over in tokyo a lot of that so um but anyway but um yeah so I, i'm good with her as well so um i don't know chris montan too much but he worked on a whole lot of um a whole lot of uh, music and all that i thought maybe you would know him a little better because of his um work on soundtracks and all that for a lot of major pictures and all that so otherwise i don't know i there's like maybe four people i think really deserve it so <laughs> but who am I to judge? You know, yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's one of those things where it's it, I I hate saying it in this way, but it's like the it's like the legacy cast members that they get their special blue name tag. It's I, I know there's a big process to get it, and it's a huge honor for those that do. But the constant stress for needing to add people to that program and the same thing with the legends it it ultimately kind of diminishes it like i would rather that they just say like hey you know we're only inducting this year we're only inducting four people that's what i agree feel is uh that's what we feel is deserving of it for this year and where based where people are on their careers and such so we'll leave it at that and just just do it at like that. Otherwise, it does tarnish the actual, the actual integrity behind it. And you know, it's it, it. The you also have to sit back and think like, if it gets to the point where all these celebrities are becoming Disney legends, like, yeah, you hope that it means 
the same thing to them as it does the people who you know directly work in the company in the different divisions and there are some people i think that, that will appreciate it like you know Kristen Bell is a huge Disney fan. Josh Gad is obviously a massive Disney fan. Uh, it was the same way that we saw John Favreau when he got his. How emotional mm-hmm. he really was over it. So it's it's possible that they can they can still you know be fans and truly understand the value of it. But uh, at the same time, too, you also have to sit there and wonder: Are they just like acting excited about it because they were told they need to? Or do they genuinely care? And if they don't And care, we've seen that. We and we've seen that where people clearly <laughs> were not moved. Yeah. Exactly. In, in some of these. But yeah, I agree with you though. It's quality, not quantity, mm-hmm. you know, that they should be striving for here. Anyway, it'll be interesting. The other and of course the other notable thing is is that um Bob Iger always hosted this um, ceremony and Bob Chapik will not be hosting it. Yeah. So <laughs> enough said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he has a dinner over at Bob Iger's house or something. Yeah. He has to attend. Yeah. I thought you might be interested in this: the return of Movie Pass. Are you excited, Craig? Uh, not really, because I'm happy with my AMC A list uh, mm-hmm. since I. Get my three movies there a week and, you know, up to so, you know, 12 to 15 a month, uh, especially being able to see it in whatever size theater I want. So Movie Pass was cool for what it did to, to break ground for other programs to happen. But, uh, you know, they said at least in the beta mode, there will be no unlimited movies. And that was the best part of movie pass. So, uh, without, without the no unlimited, I'm not, I'm not really interested in a, in a plan where I essentially deposit, you know, $30, potentially $30 a month to them. And then they just get what was left over if I don't actually go see movies. Uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't like that kind of model. So even, and I mean, if you're able, as long as you're able to at least catch up and get ahead, because that's what I can do with AMC. If I have a month where I see no movies, I try to just see like six the next month and try to see it in like the biggest theaters as much as possible. And then usually I, the bill that I would have paid is ends up being like three months worth of movies in, in just one. So uh, I, I won't be I won't be partaking, but to anyone else who does, I, I hope it, it works for you. Well, it'll be interesting to see how long it lasts. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, anyway, are, I, I know Regal, uh, that's in the next town over, they have something similar to what your AMC one is. Although I hear wonderful things about the AMC one. We don't have any nearby. But um, now Regal's in financial trouble. So um, I've not I've not signed up for theirs. So uh, we'll see what happens with them. So. Just won't want movie theaters to ever go away. I don't either. I don't. Neither do I. I thought you know maybe if I signed up for it, I would actually see more movies. So I don't know. So, 
But oh, and we got a message. I got a message from our listener Melissa. She heard us talking about the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, and she let me know that they have an ex- exhibition that some of you may be interested in. It's Heroes and Villains, the Art of Disney Costumes. And it features 79 costumes from 32 films. It runs through the end of the year. So if you've not, now a lot of these costumes have been on display. Like if you go to any of the D23 events where, and the archives puts on an exhibit and they, they, they'll have costumes there you've seen these costumes but if you've not been able to go to a d23 event or something then and you live you know in a reasonable distance of the henry ford museum this would be your opportunity to um go and see them exactly i think this was the one that actually debuted at the 2019 expo Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then it. I think I think it traveled one other place before making its way to to the Henry Ford Museum. So uh, if yeah, if you haven't had the chance to see it yet, if 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 they've even added on it since the D twenty three Expo one, it was uh, beautiful costumes, just really it was costumes. It was gorgeous. Oh, you see that Cinderella costume from the live action film. This the the dress that gorgeous blue ball gown that's worth the price of admission yeah. right there and they so. had the hocus pocus costumes which they is, did you know, of course relevant since we're getting close to halloween season yes and they had mary poppins her traveling outfit mm-hmm. i remember was in that so okay craig until next time how can our listeners connect with you as always, you can find me on the different shows I'm on. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And you can email me, Craig, at DisneyInfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for our Disney history episodes. On the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyPlug.com, look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 